are thrilled today to have Dr. Mary Beth Gassman with us. She is the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair in Education and a Distinguished Professor and the Associate Dean for Research in the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers University. Long title, that means lots of depth in the work and a very, very specific and important expertise, which is why we worked diligently to try to get her to join this podcast with us today, particularly in Black History Month and in a connection with the launch of Defining Us at the Toronto Black Film Festival on February 16th. So we are thrilled, Mary Beth, to have you with us today. And just to get us started, I'd like in your own words for you to tell us a little bit about the work you do and why you got into the work that you do. Sure. Well, it's great to be with you today. And um, I'm happy to answer that. And a uh, funny thing, I've actually answered that for years and years and even done a TED talk related to why I do the work that I do. But first of all, just to give you a little bit of background on what I do, I am a historian and we have all these intersections, right? That could include gender and sexuality and religion and a whole variety of issues. But I, my expertise is really in race and class. And I tend to focus on students and faculty and leaders of minority serving institutions. So those are historically black colleges, tribal colleges, Hispanic serving institutions. I got interested in issues of race in particular for a very personal reason. And that is that I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan between Lake Michigan and Lake Superior, not that far from the Canada border. I grew up in an environment where there were no people of color beyond a small Native American population that was nearby. But despite the fact that there were, for example, no African Americans in that environment, there was this kind of deep-seated dislike and uh, hatred toward African Americans. And I could not understand that when I was a kid. And I even grew up in a home where my father had that sort of dislike, and I would call it pretty deep racism toward a variety of people, but probably African Americans more than anything. And so I just started pushing back asking questions. You know, the school that I went to uh, did not talk about any other racial or ethnic groups. And if they did, it was always in a derogatory way. There were many things growing up. Like, I'll just tell you, my elementary school had a slave auction when I was a kid. You know, I, I remember having a whole unit in social studies about the American South and slavery was never mentioned once. I mean, I'm about to be 54. And so I'm not that old, but this would happen. Basically, I just could not understand it. And you know, just started reading, very curious, um, had probably a 20-year argument with my father about these things, you know, really rough relationship because of it. And eventually, once I got to college and then decided to go to graduate school, it's like, you know what, I want to understand more about the dynamics between Black people and, and white people, right? And white people and Black people. And so I ended up writing my dissertation. I did an intellectual biography of this man, Charles Spurgeon Johnson, who was president of a Black college, Fisk University. He was a, he's a famed sociologist and he was one of the architects of the Harlem Renaissance. And he's this incredible person that very few people even know about. And, you know, if he were white, most people would know about him. 
I mean, we probably would be saying his name all the time. Celebrating him, right? right. Celebrating him, right? Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he's a bit of a hidden figure. I mean, within sociology, people know about him and within people who study the Harlem Renaissance, but by and large, he's a bit of a hidden figure. And I just became really interested at that point, how these kind of leaders and how Black colleges built the Black middle class and how they created opportunity for so many people we don't give Black colleges credit for that. We don't give Black people credit for the agency and leadership and activism and all that Black people did to change the lives of Black people. I think we tend to focus on white folks who have done this work or, you know, that whole savior complex, right? I think we tend to focus on that rather than really taking a look at these individuals who played such a significant role. So that's how I got interested and originally I was just going to do history. And I think what happened is because I tend to be a fairly outspoken person, people kept asking me questions and I had to bring myself up to speed. You know, I had to say, okay, so how does all of this play out today as well? And so I started to become, you know, more activist in my approach, more vocal in my approach, especially in my conversations with white folks, right? Because I think white people need to do that work. It's really, really important that we check ourselves, that we talk to others. And so that's how I got involved in what I'm involved in now. And it was because of my father who did that. And I want to say one last thing about my my father, you know, for a long time, I could not forgive him for that. But it was an African American man who is one of my really good friends who told me, you need to forgive your dad, you need to forgive your dad, and you need to realize what you learned from his ignorance. And, you know, you need to realize that that was the impetus for your career. And that was really, really hard for me. I ended up giving this TED talk about why it's important to fight against injustice. Even though it's very hard for me to say that I forgave my dad, who is now deceased, I, I'm very grateful to my friend for saying that. You know, many people will be listening to this podcast and they will be saying to themselves, as you well know, and as I well know, what are two white women doing talking about this issue? Mm -hmm. Right. What about that? Is that good? Is that bad? Is it neither? How can it help? Let's let's have that discussion just right off the top so that we can get past it. So I have, I, I guess, sort of a bold answer to that that I normally say to people, and that is that the reason why we have these racial issues in the United States is because of white people. It is not because of black people. Black people didn't do that. Black people didn't enslave white people. I mean, you know, so I think white people have got to have these conversations. And, you know, white people have had the privilege for so long of being able to go through their life and not have to think about race. They just get up and go through their life and, you know, enjoy all the privileges of being white in America or anywhere and have not had to talk about those things. And I think now... They do need to talk about those things. And, you know, I told you in the past in, during conversations that for me, conversations about race are just a normal part of life. I mean, I've been doing this work since 1994. The staff that I have and see every day is a whole group of women who are of all different racial and ethnic groups. If you look across my friend set, it's people of all different racial and ethnic groups. It's not even 
that enjoying the company and the challenge and the interaction of people of different races and ethnicities is not even something that I would have to look for at this point because it's just a normal part of everyday life. And like, you know, my daughter went to Philadelphia public schools, right? And I I sent her to Philadelphia public schools because I wanted her to have an experience where, you know, she was able to interact with respect, care, love, people of all different backgrounds. And that's who I have now because, you know, I I wanted to do that. So I think for me, it's a natural thing. I do think for a lot of people, white people, they get really uncomfortable and just really uncomfortable. And part of that is because they've had the privilege of not having to deal with these kinds of things. And meanwhile, you have people of color who have had to, they have to deal with all kinds of racial things, be they good or bad every day, right? So maybe the triumphs within their group, but also the horrific things that we tend to see in the U.S. and beyond. So I guess for me, I think white people should be talking about this. I talk to white people all the time. If I see family members saying things, I say something. I do it in a loving way, but I say something. If I see colleagues doing things that I think could be really hurtful to people of color, I'm going to say something. And, you know, I think in the past, I might have been a little bit more abrupt in my saying something, but I think what I have found to work better is to be caring, loving about it, right? Because I want them to change. I don't want them just to get mad and run away. I want them to change. So I have changed my approach a bit. And I know some people might not agree with that. They might say, well, you should just get mad as hell at them. But I think for me, I have seen more change by being patient with the conversation, letting people talk about what they're thinking, listening, pushing, but also, you know, trying to educate. And I think white people need to be doing that for each other and not just relying on people of color to educate white people who have all these ignorances. And what's an interesting thing, and I want to go back to a couple of things you said, because I think they're so important. The first thing is, is that you know, Black people didn't do this. No. And, and John, John DeVidio, who is a professor of psychology out of Yale, who's also in the documentary, when I did the interview with John, you know, one of the most profound things he said, and I thought, you know, absolutely, is look, you can't ask the people that are oppressed to change the oppression. Right. It, it doesn't work that way. If they could have done that, we wouldn't be in this mess. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today. So, It's so critical that we understand that and that white people actually come to the table and say, okay, what can I do to support, to help? But I think to your point, Mary Beth, I'm in a different position than you because I came to this later. And what I mean by that is it wasn't in my radar so much as a young person because I wasn't in that mix. I just was doing my thing right? Which I think a lot of white people are doing. You're not singing in in your neighborhoods. If you're not mixing in schools and that sort of stuff, you're just living your life. It's not your issue. And I think for a lot of people, to your point, it's important that white people, wherever they are in the process, however far they've come along, is that they meet other white people where they are. And because you can come to it with a lens of, I kind of understand where you are, bad or good, judgment or not, you can begin to have a conversation with them 
that is different than somebody who is a person of color because you've lived in that world, right? And that patience and that understanding and that attempt to bring people along, there's a lot of debate right now about Black people leading the work, how important it is for Black people to lead the work. And uh, my good friend, Patrick Jean-Pierre out of Schenectady, I think I mentioned before, you know, he said to me, he goes, you know, Stacy, he goes, we need white people in the mix, but you can't drive the car. You can sit in the front seat next to us. You can be propelling the engine. You can do all kinds of things, but the experience is ours. The experience of what we've lived and how we feel and what has happened in our lives and what needs to change on our side of that equation is our experience. And I get that. I, Patrick has helped me really get that and understand that by the same token, white people have to be in the mix because the choir can't change this completely. They can change it to a large degree, but until we change hearts and minds of the majority I think we're in an uphill battle. So I'm curious as to how you would respond to some of that. I would agree with him. I also think that we need to drive our own car. You don't yeah. need to be driving other people's car. cars. We need right. to drive our own car, you know? Yes. So, so that means that you can have two simultaneous things going on at the same time. And I try to tell people this, you know, you can have, let's say African-Americans in this case, but we have similar issues across, you know, all racial and ethnic group, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups in the country. And so what I would say is that, yes, you need folks in leadership positions. You need, you know, African-American people in leadership, making decisions, all of those kinds of things. But you also need other people of color doing the same thing and, you need white folks in positions to talk with other white folks about, you know, what kinds of things need to change. So I think this work is work that needs to be done hand in hand, not with necessarily a one entire group leading everything. I think it's all of us leading together and supporting each other. And we're all kind of taking different parts of the problem, right? So right. I think that there is merit in people of color talking to white people about what needs to change and their experiences and, you know, how to hold yourself accountable and all that. And I also think there's merit in white people talking to white people about that. I also think that there's merit in white folks and people of color working together on projects. And, and I think, I guess I think there's all this talk at one level kind of up here, and then there's the actual work that takes place. And what I have found is that the work that's taking place, not just the talking heads, but the work that's taking place is done by all kinds of people working together. I mean, I know for all of the work that we do, we're working with every kind of person you can think of from all different backgrounds. We're working with all kinds of different people. And across the board, in all of the projects that I'm involved with, it's every kind of racial and ethnic background you can think of. We also will see gender diversity, diversity in sexuality, diversity in age, diversity in country of origin, language. I get excited when I'm in that environment, right? I'm not excited about an environment that says, you know, you can't be part of this because you're not one of us. I don't want to ever go back to that. I know that that still exists, but 
I don't want to ever foster that kind of environment. I want to foster the kind of environment that includes everyone, that is inclusive as possible. And I think we all need to be part of this work. And I totally agree with you. And what I really agree with too, is what you said about when you were actually in the work and doing actual things, like you're producing something or you're actually tactically putting things on the ground, the people that are in that it's amazing. It's very diverse. It is. Because they're really focused more on what you're actually doing and how you're moving it forward than the dialogue about it. And that's been my experience as well. And what also happens is, you know, as everybody listening to this podcast knows, when you are doing something that is important to you and you're looking to develop something that's meaningful in the world and you're working with a team of people, you get to know them really well because you're depending on each other for that process. And in that getting to know each other really well, it's amazing how the rest of it will sort of fall away. How easy it is to look at the African-American man across from you, understand he comes from a different place, understand what his lens is. We know each other well. And when we know each other in relationship, we allow for difference. So I think that relationship piece is so critical to this because it's so easy when we don't have relationships in our lives for us to look out and and call a group by a name or stereotype or make an accusation, you know, and keep some distance between us. I mean, that's the case for everyone who doesn't reach out across lines to meet people who are different from them. I would say that You have to be prepared for a challenge. You have to be prepared to be held accountable. And, you know, I always say this to the folks that I work with, which is very diverse group of people. I tell them, I'm like, hey, I'm going to try my best every day, but you need to know that I do wake up white, right? So if (laughs) um, I am white, yeah, Yeah. I am white. So if, (laughs) if you see me going down a path that you don't think I should be going down or that you don't think we as an organization should be going down. I I need you to speak up and I need you to say something. And, you know, I've worked with one woman in particular, I've worked with her for over five years, an African-American woman. And she's told me, listen, I would say something. I feel comfortable enough that I would say something. And I said, you know, and I want everyone here to feel comfortable enough to say something. That's important. You have to be open to challenge. You have to be open to the fact that you might be heading down the wrong path and you need to roll it around and go the other way. And I equate that to if you're going to invite people to dinner, you have to let them eat. You can't have them sitting out in the other room. And so for me, you know, working with all of these very diverse groups that I work with and with the diverse staff, I just have to be open to that. I also have to be open to sometimes people are just going to challenge the hell out of me, right? And sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't. And sometimes it takes me maybe six months to change my perspective. It just does. That's how we are as people. You know, we grow, we reflect, we make mistakes, we stumble. Right. And there's multiple layers. And that's why I think so many voices from so many different backgrounds need to be in the conversation. So we could talk about this forever, but I also want to get to how this has informed what you're doing now and particularly with Black colleges, because I think that's a really, really important conversation. The role that Black colleges play, Black colleges 
provide an opportunity for kids that is very different than going into what I would call a general university. Tell me a little bit about that. Let's start there. What historically the role has been that they've played and why it's so critical that they are in this now. You know, I have been doing work related to Black colleges since uh, roughly 1994 and in all areas, you know, across the spectrum. I feel like I know them fairly well out of the 105. You know, I've spent a lot of time on at least 103 of them, of the campuses. And one of the things I think that they do, that majority institutions don't, is that they believe in your inherent success from the minute you step foot on campus. And, you know, there are majority institutions that would probably say, wait, we believe in our student success, but that's not always the message that, for example, Black students get when they come to campuses. They get the message that, well, you're just lucky to be here, you know, or how did you get in? You know, like all of those kinds of messages. Whereas at HBCUs or Black colleges, there's this idea that you deserve to be here, you belong here, we love you, we care about you, and we want you to succeed. And, you know, I've, over the years, I've done roughly about 5,000 interviews with HBCU students, alumni, faculty, presidents. There's one word that always permeates these interviews, and that is the word family, that the Black college is like a family. And the reason why people say that is because, for example, let's say you're a young student, you're, you're a first-year student, and you oversleep. Somebody's going to knock on your door and get you up. A professor is going to call you and find out why you weren't in class. If you can't afford your books, people will band together and buy your books for you. If you're maybe going out a little too much and you're a student, students will come together and say, hey, we want you to succeed. You need to pull back a little bit. I remember I was doing some interviews with some women at Spelman College in Atlanta. And one of the things they said is it's our obligation to reach back and pull a sister up. Right. So once we make it, we reach back and pull a sister up. I loved hearing that. I was talking to Norm Francis, who is the president of Xavier University for decades upon decades. And I remember him saying, you know, at many colleges and universities, we say, look to your right, look to your left. One of you will be gone. At Xavier, we say, look to your right, look to your left. You're responsible for making sure that both of those students graduate. Right. I mean, that is a completely different message mm-hmm. and how empowering to Black students, but my God, how empowering to everybody, right? Yeah, you know, Mary Beth, I so agree with this and I say this a lot as I've gotten more and more into this work. That's probably been one of the most profound things for me is this connected community and how much we have to learn from that yes. community <laughs> and how much we have to learn from people who have navigated this for not just their own lives, but whose parents have navigated it, whose grandparents have navigated it, how much that changes your mindset, your heart, how you move in the world. It's such a different lens and it is so beneficial for us all to learn from that. And so That's why George Patterson, who is the senior director for My Brother's Keeper out of New York, and who's also in the documentary, and he said, you know, now it's really time for these kids to step up and lead. And they have so much to teach us because there's power behind the pain Mm -hmm. and they want to be inclusive of all. And they're Mm going to bring us down this road. If we can do this together, they're going to be bringing things to the table that because white people haven't dealt with it, 
And because we haven't experienced some of those things in those ways, we can't have that lens. And it really is amazing. And I'll tell you, when you talk about HBCUs, we have a student in the documentary, a lot of them are, you know, some of them are now in college. And he went to a college on a scholarship and he said, I got there and he went to an all black high school. He said, it was such a community around me, exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And he said, but when I got to the university that is actually billing itself as this very diverse university, (laughs) right? But there's 2% males of color there. And I can't even wrap my head around that, right? Because that community is not there. They have no understanding of what I'm experiencing as I'm trying to move through and navigate a new world and trying to achieve in that world. It's very different. And I think these black colleges and universities, you step on that campus and on day one, you don't think about any of that. You're there and you're there to succeed and you're there to succeed in that environment. What we see in the data is that you can take a 10th grade young man or a ninth grade young man in schools and you can put a community around him and surround him with a lot of supports, particularly if he's having difficulty outside of the school environment, and he can be very successful. Where the data starts to fall off is year one, year two, year three, year four in college, because now I'm in a new environment and I don't have that surrounding family, as you describe. So what do you think about that? What do you think about HBCUs as the answer to that? I mean, we don't, you don't want to go back to a segregated society, but I'm curious as to, to how you feel about that. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what HBCUs and other minority serving institutions can teach us. And, you know, by and large, we tend to look at big public research universities, Ivy Leagues, Big Tens, and elite small liberal arts colleges as the people who can teach us everything. And I've tried to turn that on its head. So I have two books that do that, my Educating a Diverse Nation book and also Making Black Scientists, which are both published by um, Harvard University Press. They, both of those books take all of the good things that Black colleges and also other minority serving institutions do and say to people, hey, why aren't you looking to the institutions that have all of the expertise and track record for educating a diverse nation and, you know, saying, hey, can we learn from you instead of constantly doing this? Well, here we are on our on our grand hill telling Mm -hmm. everybody how to educate this new growing diversity of students. So these ideas that come from these institutions, they're not necessarily groundbreaking. You know what they are? They're rooted in care. They're rooted in a respect for people. They're rooted in cultural knowledge. They're rooted in the idea that people have so much to bring to the classroom and that we should value that and we should capitalize on their identity and let them capitalize on their identity. And so they're rooted in those kinds of things, things that people of color have been saying for a long time, but white folks have sort of been like, nope, we know how it works. You know, we know how to do things. We've been doing this a long time. And I I actually think that if we would engage with some of these strategies across all colleges and universities, we would be helping all students. And, you know, there are lots of Black scholars who have said this before. This is not something I came up with. But if you take care of Black students, you take care of all students. 
You just do, because what happens is if you can take care of the needs of Black students who are often ignored within colleges and universities, you'll end up taking care of the needs of everybody. Because if you go to the people who are ignored and you put things in place, everybody benefits. And so one of the things that I try to remind people of is go to the experts, go to people who've been doing this a long time and humble yourself and say, I I don't know how to do this, right? We're not experts at this. We're having problems. Can we learn from you? And that's powerful to me. I agree with you. I mean, people don't look at it from that lens. They don't look at it that way. They don't. I mean, I have had students from time to time when I'm teaching history because I try to I try to decenter whiteness and really try to emphasize all of these different cultures and how they build together the United States, right? I right. had a student one time say to me, well, what about me? I'm white. I don't see myself in the class. And I said, I just assigned a 400 page book that centers whiteness along with all this other stuff, right? So I think that even when we talk about other cultures, it's typically as an add-on, not as central, right? So I think that people have to be open to learning about others, but they also have to be open to the fact that we may disagree and that we, we live in a country where we have a right to disagree with each other. That's hard. It's hard for everybody right now. I love about your response, Mary Beth, is because what you're doing and what you're saying is that both sides have the right to the debate. I think we should be able to have these kinds of discussions. It's okay to disagree with people. It's okay to have nuanced. Oh my God, I wish that people could be okay with having nuanced perspectives (laughs) about things. And I, I think we have to be careful Because if I shut down the speech of others, eventually my speech will be shut down. And that's what we're seeing happening in these state legislatures. People are like, oh, you're, you're going to tell us I need to think that I'm going to do this to you. So, you know, I'm, I'm an intellectual. I like critical thinking. I want to have conversations with people. I don't care if people disagree. If I wanted to be surrounded by sycophants who only agree with what I agree with, I mean, I don't know what I would do. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I wouldn't be living the life I'm leading. Well, listen, it has been so such a pleasure to talk to you. It's really been great. We have really enjoyed the time. Is there any way people can reach out to you or find your work? You can check out my work at Forbes. I write a lot about Black colleges and about race in America. So uh, Forbes.com. And if you're just interested in me in general, I have a website, MaryBethGassman.net. And I will say that, you know, I think people are complex. And so if you go there, you'll see like photography, because I love photography, travel itineraries, my academic work, and um, a whole variety of kinds of things. Because I think, you know, people are much more diverse than just their their jobs. So and then, you know, always at Rutgers, which I have to say believes wholeheartedly in academic freedom and free speech and supports my work even when I'm outspoken. So Well, great. It was really nice to have you as a guest. Thank you so much. And notes will be available with the podcast. So lots of ways to connect with you and appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. 